Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Before we start today's podcast, a quick heads up on Sherlock's VIP club. From restaurants, bars and hotels to beauty, wellness and shopping, Sherlock's partners with some of London's best destinations and hottest brands to bring its VIPs exclusive monthly offers. So why not sign up? It'll cost you just £5 a month or £50 for the year. Use your card once or twice and you'll have made that amount back in no time. For more information, visit sherlocksvip.com. It was 20 years ago that Trini soared to fame as one half of the outspoken duo Trini and Susanna. A shopaholic with an eye for cut, colours and just the right amount of glamour We grew up watching her dish out style advice on her hit show, What Not To Wear. After taking her street-talking advice around the world, Trini took a hiatus from our screens before returning to become a social media star. Recently, launching her own makeup collection, Trini London, she has an army of over 300,000 loyal followers watching her daily online fashion and beauty videos. Television presenter, author, beauty entrepreneur... And so renowned, I need only use her first name, Trini. Welcome to your Sherlock's success story. Hello, darling. Lovely to be here. Lovely to have you. There's so much I want to ask you. Let's go back, back, back. You started writing a fashion column with Susanna for The Telegraph in 1996. Mm -hmm. Is that where you met? That's where we met, and up to then I'd probably done about four different careers. So my first ever job was actually cutting the meat at Partridge's on a Saturday when I did them <laughs> from 16 to 18. And then I did a little business when I was still at school called Bows Unlimited, which was selling bows like Princess Diana bows, and I sold them in Dover Street to a shop called Crowlar, and then I sold them at Barney's in New York. Then I stopped that, then I did a bit of PR, then I did some trading commodities, and then finally I woke up one day and I thought, I absolutely hate what I do, but I love shopping, finding inexpensive things, making them look better. I love the fact that girls come to my bathroom and I make them over with their makeup and skincare and clothing. So I kind of always loved it since I was six. So then I had this idea in my head of thinking it'd be really nice to have a column where women could see what there was that week in the stores because unlike today where we can see that second what's in the stores then it would be warehouse making something up for Vogue and appearing three months later in Harper's and Queen and or you know and it would just be you'd never be able to buy stuff that wasn't really really expensive straight away so I told Susanna this idea and she then called me out the next day and we were introduced by some good friends said can I steal it and I went no you can't fucking steal it (laughs) but we could do it together so then we very good luck we got to do a column for the telegraph we did a page three on saturdays in the weekend and so we thought oh my god we have to fill a whole page so we had Suzanne and i modeling the things ourselves and then we did what we love and what we hate 
And I think that probably put us on the map because, you know, there's always relationships, we know this, between advertisers and brands Mm. and uh, magazines and how you balance that relationship. And I think it's something that now is very difficult to navigate even just with social media and what's an ad and what's not. But to have the freedom, and this is what I think I have still today, to be able to say, I don't like it just gives you a voice of mm. knowledge that you're kind of being would just you're being honest and that you're not constrained by things so i kind of say you know, and then what, people believe you when you say something's good. They do. And it's always that it's what we really passionately love. So even though some people might say, oh, I don't like what you did on white suits this week. I love a white suit. You know, it might crease like Falcon or whatever. But, you know, you just, you do. And therefore it gives you that sense that you love your work. So there was a big transition for me between aged 18 and age 28 of waking up one day and realizing I could do something I loved. As opposed to before life of self-employment where I you know had a boss and I wasn't necessarily doing a job I liked I was doing a job I thought I should do because I didn't know what I wanted to do which a lot of women identify with that period in your 20s where you kind of you feel all your friends have found a career and you haven't yet and you're trying a different thing every year or 18 months so you started doing that and you thought this is it this is what and I'm I just doing. kind of thought this is it and when we first started doing it and could you could you write sorry did you have any Susanna training was in much better at writing I was not good at writing, but I was quite good at styling. So we very laboriously did the whole thing together. So a column would take a, a full week and, you know, we'd write side by side, dissect each word. Then we'd go to the shoot. Then she'd choose the clothes with me. And then, you know, we'd do the photography. And in half of that, Susanna was thinking, oh, please, can Trini let me get on with writing it? And in half of that, I was thinking, please, can Susanna not try and start the shoot? <laughs> so then over a few months, it evolved that I'm very good at what's the bare bones and the point of this story. And then Susanna's very good at let me tell that story. So that worked very well for the column. And consequently, we did 11 books. And, and you did seven years of that column, is that Seven right? years of that column, yeah. And what else were you doing? Was it taking you a week to write? Right? You think how much content week. we produce these it was days? It's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. And then we did a little TV show for Granada Sky, which we filmed in our homes. And then we decided, like in 98, to do an online business. And it was way too early. It's kind of what, what would be like it now? Weirdly, you know what would be like it is what Holly Willoughby's just about to do with her Truly thing. But it's that thing of having seven channels for women and products in each channel and reviewing. Hers will be her own products, but reviewing the whole high street for everything and getting the best. So we started to do that manually. So we called in 3,000 pieces of clothing and photographed them all. We did this amazing personalization where you had a body and you made it as big or short as you were and made the boobs big or small. And then you said, I want to dress at 50 pounds and this is my body shape. And we said, it's in Topshop and it's 49 pounds Amazing. and it's your body. But no way to make money because there weren't any stores online. Yeah. So, and then by 2000, online was, was not working. God, so you were really, I mean, ahead of, it's ahead of the time. Really ahead of the time. I, had, I mean, I, like, when I walk into your office, it's like I had 60 girls working for me and, and three met, four men. God, that's incredible. But, yeah, so it that's was so really interesting. Yeah, but it's, We've barely um, heard of the internet in I know, 1998. I know. But it was kind of, it was weird. It was a very weird time. So that then went. And then Susanna was having another baby. And I was thinking, what the fuck am I going to do? You know when you kind of, you can't see what's ahead of you. So I went off to Arizona. And I did this week. It sounds so quirky. I did this kind of spiritual retreat. Because I was so not living in the moment. I was kind of living in the fear of the future and what we'd done in the past. And, and Susanna was just living in baby land, numbed for everything outside of her. So I then came back feeling very different. And two weeks later, the BBC ring up. 
who'd done a pilot with us and said, we want to commission the show based on your column and call it What Not To Wear. So one thing is taken and another thing is delivered. So that's, so What Not To Wear started in 2000, 2001. And did you jump at the chance? We jumped the chance. The BBC were calling, and I was like thinking, what am I going to do next? And they were saying, we want to do a show on BBC Two, 12 parts, and see how it goes. And the initial premise of the show was? It was based on our column. So they loved our column, and the woman who followed our column was the woman who ended up commissioning it. And she just said, you know, I want to have a sense of the high street. I want women to feel a makeover. I want to do different body shapes. I want you to say what's great and what isn't great. And then this kind of mirror thing, which became defining moment of what not to wear, which is they've stepped into this mirror, and they have this 360 degree, which, you know, then Gok had his walking look, look yes. naked. And everyone then followed on from that. But... That was quite defining in the makeover genre. And up to that, then you just had the clothes show. So even though in retrospect, a lot of people said, oh, they were so tough and blah, 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 blah. There's not one woman that I think regretted doing the show. And I remember once a few years in when one tabloid newspaper were trying to get dirty stories on discontented canned contributors or something, you know, and they couldn't find one person. And so the experience of those people had shifted them. Sometimes the next day they went back to wearing whatever they were wearing before, but something always resonated. Kind of, so 100% success was because we did revisits. It's revisit and there's somebody in their clothes are in order and they've got a different space on and their relationship with their husband is better and they've got a different job. And you think, God, this is like <laughs> brilliant. This is what we want to do. And then one or two would go back to and there'd be like the clothes we bought the hanging inside the cupboard for special occasions and their self-worth on the floor. And you just thought, oh. Mm. So you want to kind of then... Tried again. So we did about four years of the BBC. And Is that it was, how long it yeah. was? And how many series was We it? did four series. Yeah. And how long did it take to film? I always used to think it time. must take you so long. It was you very must have long. invested so much. And I think television then was more expensively made with big audiences. So we'd had audiences of seven or eight million people, yeah, which you'd never get now on a show like that. But they spent quite a lot of money and the cost for episode was very expensive for the BBC at the time. So we probably spent 10 days filming per episode and we probably did 12 or 24. So you ended up then spending five months a year filming that, that series and then the other doing a bit of research and then doing our columns. So we tried to space it out because to do five months back-to-back means you just don't see, any, see anyone. So we sort of did it over seven months. And what was the moment where you were like, wow, this is just going to change our lives? Because it did, right? I mean, I think you was, were so famous in the days of TV with millions and millions I know. of viewers. I think it was kind of, it's difficult looking, I find it very difficult because I only look forward, I don't look back. But it was when we'd, we'd done our second series of What Not To Wear. We were still on BBC Two. And we decided to bring a second book out. And our first book did like 13,000 copies. And then we did telly. And then I remember the publisher calling me up like we'd brought the book out in October and she said do you realise how many copies you're selling a week and I said well I don't know is it good or bad she said 47,000 copies a week is really good <laughs> and I was like is it you know and, and then it's in better that year than 13,000 yeah, isn't it oh god and in that year between UK and America we sold a million books so then I kind of I didn't know that our few months of figures were really good figures because I couldn't gauge it and at the time there yeah, was no other thing to benchmark it yeah. so so then we did another book, and then suddenly people started offering us very good contracts. And then when people start offering you very good money, you know you're doing quite well. And your body shapes were just so perfectly yeah. complementary, weren't they? Yeah, they were. Was that ever a conscious decision? Never, that- never. It just so happened, it just evolved, because Susanna was always saying, you know, I can't wear this high round neck, I've turned into a uni boom. We thought, that's, that's a rule we've got to incorporate. So the rules that we use that went on a lot of different books were based very much on Susanna and I to to begin with. And then as we, we did one called 
what not to wear, but it was just on things that we found difficult, like if you have a big belly, what do you do, or if you have thick ankles. So there were specifics. And then over the years, we fine-tuned it, because what we realised is when we were filming people and doing makeovers, there were rules we were applying in our head. So then we kind of put them down on paper, and we did the Body Shape Bible, which was just trying to give different types of shapes without making people feel... Because people, you know, when I say somebody, you're a brick, they go, oh, no, and I say Kate Moss is a brick, because it just means you don't have a waist, and you have proportionally good legs and arms, and you have a flat tummy. But we happen to call it brick, <laughs> which is, you know, and having that template, because I always found that women find it difficult to know what suits them. And then we had body shapes that we felt covered most people. You know, as we were learning rules from dressing women, we created books based on those rules. And I think that worked. Can we just talk about the books? Yes. In those days, were you making a phenomenal amount of money from the books? Because you were selling, you know, hundreds of thousands yeah, of copies. We, we, I had every book yeah. you ever brought out. I mean, we all did. I know. That was the kind of heyday of book publishing, yeah. wasn't it? I mean, was that seriously was, lucrative then? It was very lucrative for us because the first book, they paid us like a nice advance. And then they paid us a commission on a certain number of copies. And then we only sold 13,000 copies. So the next deal, Ed Victor was quite clever. He's passed away now suddenly. And he said he went back and they didn't want to do a second book because they hadn't done off us but hadn't done so well. And he said, well, look, why don't we say you paid them a really low upfront, so you paid them 20 grand. But if they sell over 20,000 copies, you pay them 12.5%, which is high for books. So they said yes. <laughs> so then that book they paid us a lot of money and then they wanted to go to contracts they thought if these next few books do well they can't afford to do that deal on each one so they then offered Susanna and I a three year book deal which is a very good book deal we had a really good book deal and you brought um, out how many books? And we brought out 11 books <gasps> 11? Yeah. wow that's mm. incredible mm. and why do you think people liked you so much? because you were two posh girls on TV like that shouldn't work right? It's you shouldn't become of- national treasures talking like you do on TV, telling people it's not kind, what not to I wear. Know, Why did, what was it about you two that worked so well? I think that even though some people see it as a class-derived thing, it's more about how plainly you speak or how prettily you speak. And it doesn't really matter what background you come from as to how you convey that. So we were quite plain speaking. Susanna was more cosy-cosy. And I think that there is a very old-fashioned expectation, and this is like still in the late 90s, that you perceive certain people with a certain education to behave in a certain way. And, and when they don't, you're quite pleasantly surprised. And when they don't, you just are interested in what they would do out of that box, which we still have as a surprise today in any kind of person that you think they grew up one way and then they behave differently. So I think it's a little bit of that. And the fact that it was also, you know, every girl grows up watching Cinderella and... As a concept, the makeover, to me, is a perennially popular concept. Yeah. And sometimes it is, and for a few years it had not been done, you know, and we brought it back. So the idea was, was at the right time. So it was huge, and the show ran for four series. Yeah. And then you moved to ITV. Yeah. For a new series, Undress the Nation. Yeah. Why did you do that? We had a very lucrative deal with this cafe. <laughs> and the BBC was saying we couldn't continue it. And it was like a couple of million quid. It was a nice deal. And they just said you couldn't continue it. So we thought, OK, if we move to ITV, and ITV had wanted us to move for two years. And so we thought, OK, do we do this? So we did it. And the first series did the same figures as our BBC One one. But it was very different. We'd sort of all gone around 
but not delved into the emotional side of why women do things. It had been more of a visual display. And with Undress, we went a bit more emotional. And some people were like, they're not psychiatrists. But the thing is, I've made over 5,000 women. I know women really well. I know by how they dress, how they feel. You know, it's it's like a doctor. You just get to know it through experience, experience. So Hmm. it surprised us because we loved the show. And I remember, funny enough, the couples that I did on that first undress, I remember them so well because their stories were heartbreaking or their stories were, you know, and it was couples. And I liked the fact it was couples. And our first couple was a couple in Scotland, in Aberdeenshire, in Fordyce. And there was some dynamic in this couple. And we went to sort of get to know them and start stayed with them and spent time with Suzanne went with one and I went with the other and and then I thought to myself this guy has undiagnosed Alzheimer's his detachment everything so we kind of that came up as a story and then the lady revealed to me she'd had an affair and then we thought do we have the responsibility that we don't want it to be shown on camera so we want to ask her if she wants to tell her husband and so it, it revealed some really emotional situations but weirdly you know the year later they are not getting divorced, which they were when we met them, and they're together. You know, for us, it was so fulfilling mm. as a story to do, and, mm. and we had this always this scene in it, which was a weird scene, but I really liked the scene, which is we put a curtain up, like a clear sheet, and we did this with one couple where the wife had breast cancer, and she had stopped undressing in front of her husband for the last two years. So he'd never seen her naked I think for I remember years. this. And we had this thing where we asked them to take this little directional camera and they would each be naked and say what they loved about that person's body and he you know went to her scars immediately and said I love your scars because I know what you went through and you survived and it was so emotional oh god and it was just kind of I think really heartfelt so then the show was just for some people too emotional yeah and I kind of I loved making it I loved making it more than I loved making what not to wear you see you did that for how long we did that for three years and, and then, then what stopped. happened? Stopped. We had eight years by this stage of makeover shows. Then you had got one. You had the double barreled Nikki uh, Hamble, the double barreled lady. Jones. So you had about three other shows and busy, busy. So Susanna and I thought, that's it. It was like the internet company when it closed. It was that same feeling, I remember. And it was literally 10 years later, probably. So we had a tiny show we'd made in Belgium because we had in this business a little underwear business which did Maddie Knickers which was a really great business actually we sold to like 50 countries and they said can you come make a TV show in Belgium because we want something to support the knicker business so we did this tiny show and it was nearly a disaster but it was a funny makeover show and it was much more simple and we could kind of do what we want and this production company Zodiac took it to Cannes and when it was at Cannes about 14 countries who bought one not to wear said this is great this show can we do this show? So I just thought they were going to buy the format. And they said, no, can you come to these countries and make this show? So Susanna and I thought, well, we're not doing anything here. (laughs) So we started not realising what an undertaking was going to become because then for four years we spent Monday to Friday abroad and if we were in Europe, so if we were doing some in Norway, Denmark or Sweden or easy place to get back to, Israel we'd go back every two weeks, India we would do it in one shot and do be a month there, Australia would be a month there. So she had three children, I had one and we worked from 6am to midnight, six days a week. It was like the hardest, I, I would say it's the hardest I worked in my life, but now it's actually until you got until you launched Trinity London, and did you do it for the money? We did it for a mixture of things. The money was half what we made in the UK, but we're used to working hard. We were used to TV. We knew how to do TV. We were being offered a job. We took the job, and it paid okay. 
And it also then weirdly exposed us to all these countries where, you know, we have a smattering of presence in these weird, like I went to Stockholm the other day to do something for launch my business, and there were so many people there who knew me because of that. And, you know, we did Oprah in the States. So you just, that's the beauty of online, a smattering, you know, distilled audience can become a unified audience mm. um, when you can use the online together. So you did your world tour. We did the world tour. You did a world tour. So and world tour. what happened after that? So then four years into that, we were kind of exhausted because we saw our kids Saturday morning, Sunday night. And this was when? What year are we in now? This is like 2008 to about 2013. So you get to 2013 get and you've 2013. had enough of your, your roadshow, your world show, and you want to see your I children. I really had enough. And also I'd always wanted to not not work with Susanna because she is my sort of best friend for life and we've shared more than I've and shared you with still, anyone else. Are you still yeah, best we friends? still speak once a week and we know everything that we're each doing and we're really close. I, she knows me better than anyone else knows me and vice versa. And there's been occasions when we've known each other better than our husbands have known each other. You know, it's really, when you go on the road that much, you know everything about You're somebody. like siblings. Almost. Yeah, you are. So to the extent where you're kind of, oh, she's doing that again. But you just kind of, you know. <laughs> she's trying to style my shoot again. Yeah. <laughs> so we both agreed. Let Susanna want to write a book. I had wanted to do something in this makeup thing and I'd kind of had this idea for ages and I'd been stacking my products and I'd been squidging around for me and I'd done this for about two or three years we didn't have another job and we just said okay let's just not pursue other ones because we had two or three that maybe we could have done we said let's just actually not say that we'll make another one happen so we don't go and look at what we could do mm. you know it's like yeah. you've got to make that decision where there's something you could allow to give there was you a bit al- of money there would always have been something yeah. for you to uh, or else you, you make that space to actually develop something so that because if we keep it as a little dream what happens is we don't have to say it failed and I think many women, what prevents them being an entrepreneur is they can tell their friends, oh, this is my idea. So they live off the joy of what that idea might be. But as soon as they start that idea, there is an opportunity for failure. And that's the hardest thing to accept that you might fail. And was it hard for you to say, right, this is done, this period of our life? I mean, together, what you achieved was phenomenal. Yeah. But I guess with every sort of TV show, it runs its course, doesn't it? Yes. And also, did you ever come away and go, God, we did that together? Or did it just peter out and then you don't really have that moment? I don't know. I think weirdly I look back now and I feel more that moment of what you're saying. So I think at the time, you're right, it petered out. So I didn't look and think, oh, look at all those three and a half million books we sold or 26 series we made. (laughs) But oddly, my daughter was quite young at the time. So... I told her a bit the other day, she said, you did an awful lot, mummy. You know, it's like that. She sort of doesn't really give a shit, but, you know, occasionally think. And then I might think, well, you know, if I died tomorrow, I've already done a hell of a lot. That's fine. But I'm definitely not dying tomorrow, so there's a lot more to do. You've got a lot more to do. And in 2016, you became this morning's fashion star. This morning. That was, I was so excited to get that. Because I I was, I really was, because I was working on this idea and I was not earning any money and I started to sell some of my clothes because I'd, got a tiny bit of funding for the business but I needed more so I sold 70% of my wardrobe and I got 60 grand in so that kept me going thankfully for two not years. the jacket you're wearing today because it's thankfully great. not the jacket <laughs> I'm wearing today and that kept me going but then I was thinking I've got to earn some money now and then I was thinking well what can I do that will allow me to earn money and still not take my eye off the ball with this so then 
somebody said, I'm going to put you forward for this morning. So I went to see them and I said, I'm so excited that I'd love to do it. You know, I think they were thinking, oh, she might say yes. And I was like, I really would love to do it. Yeah, and the, it's, of all the TV gigs. Yeah, and it's very, know. the team are great. I know them well. They know how anal I am. You know, there's three people who do this morning. There's myself and Gok and Lisa Snowden. And we all work very differently. And what's great is there's flexibility. So I'll do three or four days a month. He'll do two, three days a month. Lisa would do, you know, and it just works. And it's very easy. And the women are exactly the women that it's very important for me to stay in touch with, to know how they're feeling as women, because they represent that British woman, Mm. you know, and they have all walks of life this morning, but they represent the stay-at-home mum, they represent the woman who's a career one who maybe has a bit of time off, they represent the granny. It's very important in any business you do. Like, we have on our wall the women who we are our customers, so they're up there, who they're following. For, you know, we just have them sitting in the room with us, and that's yeah. so important because you've got to think any new thing you do, you have to think, is she going to get it? Is yeah. it going to resonate with her? Who's the customer, who's the viewer, the, customer? the reader? Yeah. Exactly. exactly. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And with a background in TV, why did you turn to social media to sort of relaunch yourself? I mean, and I thought we'd gone wrong somewhere, that in 1998 you tried to launch a sort of personalisation... Yeah, and 20 years later. ...online shopping business. And, you know, likewise, why did you see social media as such potential? I think because I had this one defining meeting at Facebook about three years ago. And I'd just done a little bit on Instagram. And then they just said to me, and they kind of, I started to do a few Instagram videos. And then they said, come and talk to us. And they said, look, you can get this interaction with your audience. So I then went home. I put it on the wall. Women started, you know, leaving messages. And I thought, this is so much more amazing than telly. I remember feeling that strength of that moment. Because I thought all the time, in all that jolly TV career, I had had many discussions, fights, arguments, conflicts of interest with producers and editors as to how they should edit the show or or what is the message of the show and there were times especially as ITV progressed where they didn't make the show I thought they were going to make you know they made a different show or a more vulgar show or a more loud show and it didn't tell the narrative the way I wish they would tell the narrative and they are appealing to their audience but I just you know there was something which made me feel "Mm, I don't know if I want to do another series anyway Mm. so to be able to control that whole environment and to give the message you want to give and to leave it up to that audience to decide if they join in or not you know what I mean it's not like it's the only thing on BBC2 and I watch BBC2 there's many things of choosing what you could do so somebody chooses to tune into me generally 
they do it because they love it. So you get an audience that's very receptive to what you're doing. And it in itself gives me energy. So, you know, days I'm a bit flat and I think, oh. I'll do a live. I'll do a live. And I do a live and... You, it's also that thing of, you know, when you're feeling self-obsessed and, and, and sad, go and do something for somebody else and you'll feel better. It's a similar premise because you go and get involved in somebody else's issue. Or I'm feeling this day, can you help me? And then I think, well, let me help them because I do always really want to come with solutions for people. That's the thing I've always been. You know, mm-hmm. like when I have a friend for them, just tell me what's going on. I find it very difficult to just listen because I want to say, this is what you could do and it would make it better. Because you know, <laughs> I have to come with a solution. God knows where that comes from. But I love the fact that you genuinely believe that digital is more exciting than TV. It's like people who say digital versus print. Oh, I really want to work in digital. You never quite believe it. You think they're just talking more exciting. Let's talk about Trinity London. Why did you decide? To do it. a makeup range and not a fashion range. And not a fashion range. Interesting question. I delved in fashion a tiny bit. Not fashion. I delved in QVC clothing. You can't really call it fashion. But just the sense of, again, compromising what their audience wanted and what I want to deliver was different. So I thought clothing is a risk. And mm-hmm. I did, funnily enough, have an idea for clothing before I decided to do the beauty and then I realized there's too many things returns. that can go wrong, too many returns, one of the biggest things. And even though it was this kind of premise which wouldn't give so many returns, I had always been obsessed with makeup and I'd always stacked my makeup and I'd always had people say, what is that? You know, it's like before I create the invention, I'd create the invention as it were, mm. because women in Bath would say, what is that? And I'd say, it's my makeup. You know, proudly, it's my makeup. And I was that woman, you know, it sits there, I'll never make it, but I can say, look what I could have made. You know, I remember even when I had the stacks like this, I was going to New York and I wanted to get a meeting with Landon Lord, who was a friend of a friend of mine. So I got to meet him and he went to his apartment and he showed me his beautiful Brack collection and his, you know, Picasso's classic <laughs> moment. And he was very charming and I sat next to him on a very mutual good friend's wedding. So he was very sweet with me and, and nice. But I just went... I just need to let you know, I've got this <laughs> put in front of him. Literally, it was tagged together, plastic things, and I'd done in, like, Dymo, blusher, I'd written it down the side, and I said, but it's all my makeup, Leonard. And then in front of him, I put on all my makeup. And he went, Trini, that's fantastic. I love it. When it's worth 200000000 million, I'll buy it. But then when I launched, I sent him an email, and I went, Count down that clock. I'll be in touch. Count down that clock. <laughs> and what was the business model when you launched? When what I launched, the business, the business model was and still is that we are an online makeup business, which through personalization allows more people to go online than you could imagine would buy makeup online because it's a harder choice for a first time purchase online because you think of the colors. But I think I had so much information in my head and from data of women going to a beauty counter, getting the wrong color foundation, you go outside, the light's wrong, you think, fuck me, what did you put on my face? Or you just think, I need to change my routine. I'm 25, I did it since I was 13. And I felt there was a part to play in education, in kind of not just this is the new makeup look that you must do, but what do you think you need to do to make yourself better? And... I wanted to have it personalised because I love personalisation. And I'd done that in a way with Ready2 in the early days. And I felt the importance of personalisation when we did makeup on all the teams around the world on the show. I'd re-educate these little makeup artists and I'd say, look, think of their skin, hair and eye and don't just put a red lip on everyone because everyone's unique. So, you know, Charlotte, who's my makeup artist, who works with us today on the brand, Shasha, was always doing that. We were doing it together. And there was a kind of... it turned into the formula for what is the personalization of the kind of doing your she, your skin, hair and eye. 
and which for further things we're going to do in the next two years will be very much more personalised in other areas we're going to do. So it was that. It should be portable. The products had to be amazing. So choosing the price point was interesting because I have a very varied audience in terms of financially who can afford what. Yeah, But I knew that it had to be something that I would use every day. But that you genuinely, that I'd genuinely, you know, yeah. because it was everything I, all the formulas I was developing. Yeah, not are, great if you're creating such a mass marketing yeah, product exactly. and then you're using Tom But also all the formulas I was creating are not cheap formulas. So I wanted to have that foundation where you'd rub it in, you don't know where your skin ends, where your foundation begins. So to get that depth, to get the penetration, you have to have a small molecule, you have to have a mixture of oils and pigments. The pigments have to be very finely ground. There's so much that goes into it, whereas a mass market makeup which might have huge uh, minimums so they can bring the price down, but might still have a lower-grade oil sure. and an emollient. less complex. And, yeah, and, and less complex. So, okay. so that was really, really important and to then decide what should the price be because you're going to think some people might never be able to afford it. But I think for most of us, we have a parameter of clothing. You know, we know as women, my it's like, which is your... My cheap is probably... I wouldn't do Primark. That's too cheap for me of what I'd buy. So my, my, my daily is Zara, okay? My slightly special is Kos. My I'm really on a special one would be Celine. Like twice a year I'll buy something from Celine. But that's my thing. So I don't go off and out of my comfort zone. You've got your own parameters. Okay. And, and Makeup and skincare are slightly different because there'll be a woman whose mid to upper range might be Zara and whose skincare might be number seven, but she'll have a Dior compact mm. in her makeup bag so I think it's the area where we can most jump out of our comfort zone in terms of what we feel financially we can justify and I think that's a really interesting model in business too yeah I think it's smart and how long did it take you to launch it you went live in we went live in October 2017 yeah at the end of Um, October so we've been live November, December, January, February, March. Five and a bit months and when you actually got down to it was it a six months was it a lot of time in the making Yes, because it takes a long time to raise money. And, and, and did you raise money? I raised money. I raised two and a half million. But I raised 150000 to begin with on a seed EIS scheme, which is one where you can, as an investor, get 50% back. Mm-hmm. And it's a great tax scheme. So I got the investment from a woman who ran beauty at Mintel and a friend of mine who's my daughter's godfather. And they both invested. And then it gave me enough to write the business plan to get help on the figures and think, okay, let me develop the concepts of the product and things. And then with that, to go out and raise two and a half million. And raising money from someone you know, you mentioned your daughter's godfather. Yeah. Do you think that spurred you on? Do you think that's a good thing? Do you feel more pressure given the fact that he's your daughter's godfather? Do I feel more responsibility? No, because I know he's an investor, a professional investor. But I think when you get a friend investing, and in this round, the last round, I had five people I didn't know who invested, and I had four people who I did know. So some of the ones I do know literally put their life savings in so I have a real responsibility to them yeah. they really you know they call me up and say I really want to invest in any it's like their partner w- wouldn't because he couldn't get his amount and they did so I feel a great responsibility with that and there are other people where as a businesswoman I really respect them and I really want them to feel they put their right faith in me so you feel an obligation when you have outside investment that you, it's not just your money it's mm. their money and mm. you need to really make sure you spend that well you know, I have a very good COO and we're really unextravagant in our office. He checks everything and maybe we need to hire in more middle management, which we'll do on the next raise because we're doing another raise now for five million. But it's like where you spend your money cleverly so you get ready for the next raise, but you don't overspend. Because what I learned from 
the days of the other business is we raised £7 million in like two months. It was so quick to raise money then. And we hired in too quickly middle management who we paid like 100 grand salaries to, head of marketing, etc., who then had been in some businesses and were cruising with our business and they didn't convert our business into customers. Mm. And I didn't see that they didn't and they were cruising. And that, so I think I'm so aware now that I would rather mark myself and the CTO and then there's a really great team in their 20s. We will need some people in between, but I don't not want to... Not too soon. Not too soon mm. and not eating the fat. Mm. Good advice. Yeah. And how is it running a business without Susanna at your side? I was going to say it's easier and harder. I think it's easier because Susanna hated business. And I always love business. So, like, she'd never answer emails after six. And I think I would always, it would frustrate me because I think we need an answer on this. Or, or, and she just, like, she had a very, very healthy division between work and home. Mm. But that healthiness of that division stops her being an entrepreneur. And actually, as a viewer, that doesn't surprise me. Exactly. And, she, and, and it's like nobody has a happier or unhappier life or a better or worse life. It's just a different way of looking yeah, at things. people yeah. want different things. Yeah, Motivated exactly. by different things. Yeah. Tell us more about the range. Why did you only produce cream-based products? I think when I look at a woman's face and I see she's wearing powder, I see the powder sitting on top of her face. To me, the ultimate makeup... Yeah, I'm looking at you, Georgie. To me, the ultimate makeup is when I look at the woman... And I don't see the powder. I see her eyes, I see her lips, I see her skin, I see the glow in her skin. So it's just a feeling. You know, you can go to different parts of the world and they'll believe in totally powdered or very, very glowy. But I just, that's what I've always felt. So I kind of had to follow. And also I hate doing an eye and not being able to do my makeup first because that's what you have to do if you do powder because it all drops and then you've got to clean underneath. And I think blendability because I, I love to... You know, and Shasha as well, who's our makeup artist, was a painter before. And we both love the idea of blending and blending things together. So you might have 54 SKUs, but you can make 80 colours. Mm. And I like the idea that you make it your own. So you, you mix things together. Ruby Hammer. Blend, yeah. blend, blend. That's blend, what she blend, always blend. Says. So true. And how do you get people to buy from a brand they've never used before? Mixture. Um, you get people who knew me already and they buy because I say you got to buy it, it's great. And they've been on the journey with me. So there's those kind of stalwart people who follow me on social media and watch me on TV, and they will buy it because I say, I've made it for you, and it's great. And they'll go on that. Then you'll have people who will be their friends who might say, well, I didn't grow up with Trini. I don't know who she is, but they've tried their friends, and they love it, and they buy it. Then you have people who've never met me before, and I meet I them in the street. Who is. I no, mean, but really. this is the woman I love the most, and there's billions of them. But you know, if I meet somebody and she said, "I never knew who you were, but I love your makeup," and I'm like, because that's 99 percent of the audience I need to get to. Mm. You know, and I need to cross from the audience I have to that audience. Otherwise, I do not have a successful business. So, for me, that's the most exciting woman. I remember when I went to see, I saw them again today. Um, one of our main investors, and he said what's your target age and I said it's every age and he went you can't be every age and I said we are every age and he went you can't be every age and we are every age <laughs> so like you know we are 25% split between 25 and 35 35 45 45 55 25 everywhere so, so doing that is great but how you then market is very different yes. because then you've got if you're on Facebook the joy of marketing in the age you live in today is you can target and refine an audience so I can decide to do a boost on Facebook to women of 40 to 50 and show them a model of their age. 
and give them some messages I know will resonate with them. And then I can do a totally different promotion to Instagram girls of 20 to 30 with Flora, who's a lovely girl, and give a totally different message to them. So I think that's the exciting thing about marketing in our age, because before you'd put an ad in Vogue, it was so scattergun, and now it can be so targeted. And with your Monday morning videos, musings, 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 musings on Instagram, yeah. which yeah. I love, yeah. you're not talking about your own products. No. Well, sometimes you, I am. Do you, sometimes you drop yeah. them in, yeah. but you know, it doesn't feel too much. Yeah. How does that work with other brands? Is that all stuff that you are sent by PRs? Is it stuff that's it's, mutually beneficial? I'd say, How do you work out what to plug and why are you doing it? I'd say about 70% of it is stuff I buy. 30% of it is stuff that I say, could you send me this? So like EGF serum, I ran out, I buy it. So I've never ever featured something that somebody sent me. So what happened is I had been just doing all the things I bought and then I thought this is costing me too much money so I said you know ask SkinCeuticals to send the CEO for Rulic etc that kind of thing so then what happened is some PRs sent stuff and then they thought they could then send 20 other products so then I'd keep the SkinCeuticals but I'd send everything else back and say and then I'd say to Cecily please tell them only to send what I asked for so now most of them do that because they kind of know I don't, because I think a few things. I think that you have 85 things on your desk and it can be overwhelming to make objective choices. And I think beauty editors have a balance. I'm not a beauty editor, but beauty editors have a balance like the lady in her office to look at what's new out there and inform your audience of what's new and to pick out things she thinks is good. So there's two roles she's got to play. The only role I have to play is tell you what I'm loving and I've tried it for two weeks. So I try everything for two weeks before I talk about it, unless it's something like an instant mask, which I'll know straight away. I'll look at the ingredients and really look into the ingredients a bit, not like Caroline Huron's way, but I kind of navigate my way around what ingredients I think will work well and what don't work well. So essentially, what you're talking about is genuinely stuff you love. It's stuff I love. You're not paid to do it. Not paid by anyone. But it's all about... You know, getting your name, your profile out there, yes. building your reach, yes. and and that's a pretty smart way to market. Yeah. What is the response? Tell us about the success of Trini London because well, <laughs> it's been pretty phenomenal. It's been great, hasn't it? It's been great, and I think that you do a projection when you build a business of what you think you'll do, and you base it on assumptions. We had a very simple matrix. We said of the amount of people that follow me, maybe two percent of people will buy. And if 2% of those people buy, it will equate to this much in money. And then we think that person will spend an average of X. So what happened is, so far, 3% of the people that we said, you know, instead two, it's been 3%. And then of the amount we thought they'd buy, they spent double the amount we said they would buy. And then how often they come back and buy more, they do that three times more than we said. So that meant that we... What we said we would do in our first year, we've done in our first five months. So that's great, and it's a great position to be in. I'm going out for another fundraise because I want to grow skincare and all these other things. So wow, there's, you know, there's a lot to do. And had you always planned to do another fundraising so soon? Oh, yeah, soon, I will do. It... If I look at the projection of this business to get it where I want it to be, I've done the one for launch. I do another one now for skincare and to grow into America. And then I will do another one probably, which will then be to go the other way or whatever it might be then. But at the moment, that's my feeling. And another category, which I'm going to bring into. So by year five, if I look at what I want it to be, because I think you always have to have a vision. And I remember I met Natalie Massonet when I very first was doing this business. And she said to me, you've got to feel what that business is like in five years' time. And you've got to 
behave as if that's what it's like in some ways and, cre- and, and create that vision. So when I am telling somebody about the business, I'll say, you know, ultimately it's a place that women are going to come because they'll know that place is somewhere where everything they need is very personalised to them and it's honest and it will deliver what they need. And they'll want to visit it every day because it will also give them free information which really benefits their life. Which is why, you know, we have the blog on the site. Yeah. And now we do emails and everyone now is upping their emails. And I was just looking at, you know, do I want to be every day sold a product? I'll, I'll switch out of that email. But we have a shitload of content because I'll do my secret seven vitamin C's. Then I'll do. So every time we send an email out now, we have some editorial content which is what you do and why Mm -hmm. you have such a high open rate because people want to read your stuff Mm -hmm. but when you're a brand it's harder yes so it's how do you have that balance that people come because they want to read the information and then they might buy if they're not intending to buy or you have a new launch and then they want to buy and is that your biggest revenue generator your email i'd say still organic searches which is coming which is a knock-on from all the other things from all the other things all the other things you're doing and then i would say facebook and instagram QVC? We're I fascinated think, by QVC here at Shedox. Okay, I'll tell you what I think about QVC. I think they need to evolve because their audience is dying of people who will sit down to have an appointment to view to buy a product. Their business model is tricky. Brands do incredible, some very big brands that have very big sales, like Bare Minerals and It Cosmetics have had billion dollar sales and exits, and they started their life on QVC. So it's a phenomenal revenue driver. For a small business, they take your things on consignment. It can kill your cash flow. So it's a, it can be a really tough one. You can have things sell very well. But if you're somebody who's price sensitive, they can then, if you have a bad few weeks, they'll put you in a discount Friday and suddenly you have a discounted brand when that's not your brand integrity. Mm-hmm. So there's pros and cons, but there are new QVCs evolving. And there's new ways that we can buy like that. And one of them is Facebook Watch, which I told you a bit about before, which I'm going to work on and there are two new digital channels that are doing tele sales in a new way and then in about three months here you will buy directly from Instagram because at the moment you have to click to go on the site but you will be able to buy directly which has started in America so the concept of watching something and then clicking to press a button to buy is what QVC is Amazon will but there, Amazon, are, there are other ways yeah I mean Amazon to be honest should be doing it now because they have the most frictionless route to market mm. and they have the most inventory and they're trying to get in there with beauty and clothing. They will get there and they will probably be the biggest but at the moment the choice yeah. is a bit dodgy. They've got a, they've got a way to go. Yeah, and there are 100% of your sales coming through your website? No, we point. have a little pop-up at the office and people can book in online. So everything is booked and done online but you can you know, pay £50, go and have makeup done and it's redeemable and it's very popular they're always busy and it's kind of a great way for people who think I don't know if I have the courage to buy online or I want to know how to learn to do makeup mm. I never learned you Get know, a some, some women, yeah, like girls come in their 20s who haven't learned yet and women come in their 60s who never learned to begin with and you know we have every day on Trini Lund on the Instagram so many different age groups which I love Love um, that. So what fun. It works, yeah. Any plans for a store? We tried a tiny pop-up in Ireland at Brown Thomas, and it was amazing. I mean, it did really, you know, they were very, very, very happy. And I love the idea of it, and I kind of, a part of me loved to see that brand interact in that traditional way that I grew up with makeup. 
and see women coming up and being excited by the colours and look at the brand and putting them you know there was something there's something lovely about that and so I think there is a place for any online brand to have that physical interaction but what percentage of our cash flow that should be how much of it is just a marketing thing whether we do a little pop-up in London and you know we've got this thing called nominate your city on the website so we get people to nominate where they'd like us to come next and that's where we might do a pop-up and then we layer on it our Facebook following and then we decide where we should go so that's kind of our strategy for now. Like it, sounds yeah. pretty smart. And do you have a five-year plan? Is it to sell 200 million? There is a five-year plan. I think probably to sell, but then in five years, it might be at a really exciting stage. And the things I'll never want to stop working. So it's whether somebody pushes me out or whether somebody says, "Yeah, we still want that old hag at the helm." <laughs> and I'm thinking I will because I will work until I die. You know, I would never ever retire. <laughs> or whether I think I've got another business in me yet yeah. and let me use this money to start that. Yeah. We're nearly out of time, but while I've got you, Trini, a few really quick fire questions. What's your best piece of beauty advice? Clean your skin and clean again. Otherwise, no product is going to work that goes on afterwards. What's your favorite skincare? Vitamin C, 30%. What skincare products do you think are a waste of time? Sun moisturisers, lovely claims of anti-aging shit. Where does your beauty obsession come from? My mother having none. (laughs) (laughs) Acne. Any tips for dealing with acne? Zinc, niacinamide, cleanse and cleanse again. And look at your diet. Which beauty bloggers do you follow? Caroline Herons, Nadine Baggett, Lisa Eldridge, Sally Hughes, Pixie. What really motivates you? Having a meeting which could go either way and wondering what's going to happen. Finally, would you ever do another TV show of your own? Watch this space. Oh, let's hope so. Trini, as always, I could have chatted to you for hours. Thank you so much for joining us. That's it for this week. If you have any feedback, then do please rate, review, subscribe and tell your friends. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.